I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking with author Patrick L. Schmidt about his fascinating new book, Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations. It's the intriguing story of an ambitious academic attempt to unify fields like anthropology, psychology, and sociology under one umbrella. It's a story that involves the sociologist Talcott Parsons, 1960s counterculture LSD guru Timothy Leary, the radical Students for a Democratic Society, and even the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. In other words, it's a very wild and winding journey. So let's get right to it with Patrick Schmidt, author of Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations. Welcome to Parallax Views, Patrick L. Schmidt author of Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How are you? Very good, very good. Uh, so if you could maybe first uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I know uh, this book is actually a long time in the making. It began as a, a thesis she did for university, right? 
Yes, that's that's right. Uh, I attended Harvard College in my junior year. I I designed an independent study course on the history of psychology at Harvard, which was interesting because it had evolved out of philosophy under the famous philosopher turned psychologist, William James. In the course of that independent study, I learned about the Department of Social Relations, which came later and included a lot of, uh, or several of the psychologists from the department. And so my senior year, I wrote my thesis on the Department of Social Relations. And some of those uh, famous professors who started the department and were still, and had been in the department, were still at Harvard. Uh, and were willing to be interviewed by me. So that, that was great. I was able to interview the two of the founders, uh, some of the critics like B.F. Skinner. Um, so that was pretty exciting for an undergraduate. And um, uh, one of my professors, David Reisman, encouraged me to publish the thesis. I really was graduating. I was going off to Washington to work. I uh, didn't have the time to develop the thesis into a book. But I came across his letter many uh, decades later, and I said, you know, here's one of the most uh, famous sociologists of the 20th century, a public intellectual, telling me this is worthy of publication, so I should listen to him. And so I, I undertook to do a lot more research. I interviewed some graduate students. I went back to the Harvard University archives, uh, read a lot of the correspondence that had become available in the meantime, and was able to put the book together. So before we get into the sort of rise and fall of the Department of Social Relations at Harvard, maybe you can sort of set the tone for us. What was happening uh, sort of in the world of academia and intellectual thought, sociology, psychology, et cetera, uh, in the aftermath of World War II, the sort of post-war era? And how does that set the groundwork uh, for the formation of the Department of Social Relations? Well, World War II changed a lot of things in the social sciences, uh, particularly in the disciplines you mentioned in the, that were the constituent elements of the department. And the reason for that is because the U.S. government hired over a thousand uh, psychologists, sociologists, and cultural anthropologists to help in the war effort. And they were doing a number of things quite successfully. Uh, I think the principal thing that they helped with was studying the morale of our enemies, studying the morale of the Japanese uh, in particular, which uh, people in the United States, academics even, knew very little about Japan. So there was a lot of catch up going on about that culture. How would they respond to a particular action that we would take? And of course, the Germans, more was known about them. And in fact, <clears throat> there was something called the Foreign Morale Analysis Division uh, in this effort. And many of these, uh, there, were, there were several professors at Harvard from these disciplines who, even before the war, had been very interested in creating an interdisciplinary department of working together to study what they called study man as he functions in society. So in World War II, they got the opportunity to work together without departmental restrictions which is very important because they were working side by side, sociologists with anthropologists instead of separately. So when they got out, of, when the war ended, they 
came back to the academy and said, look, this, this sort of proves our, our point that there's something about inter the interdisciplinary approach that uh, the university should pursue. These artificial distinctions of departments are a thing of the past. And um, also as a group, they had, they became much, they gained a lot of credibility in World War II because before World War II, they were young disciplines, emerging disciplines, misunderstood disciplines. But after World War II, all of a sudden, as my professor David Reisman says, um, they were Cinderella at the ball. Everybody wanted their input. You know, the government, the US government was looking to them to help in a lot of different ways. So World War II changed uh, things for the social sciences uh, dramatically and, and put these, these, these social scientists in the spotlight and they, they took advantage of it. They, they had a lot of uh, confidence in their abilities and, and uh, took on a lot of uh, responsibilities. Is there also an issue of, um, like, I want to phrase this right, but I don't know if I'm going to, uh, is there also like a friction within academia at the time where you have, you know, fields like economics at Harvard being maybe sometimes taken more seriously or seen as bigger than things like sociology and psychology? Is there like a friction between the different disciplines, I guess? Absolutely. And that was another reason why Harvard decided to create the department. Um, there were frictions within psychology about what psychology should be or what it, what the discipline was. Uh, that was particularly strong uh, because it had been dominated by experimental psychologists such as uh, B.F. Skinner, who your listeners might know, uh, behavioralists. Um, and when Freud came on the scene, uh, or his theories came on the scene in, in the 20s, these academics at Harvard in the psychology department didn't want to have anything to do with this, this uh, theory, psychoanalytic thought. They only wanted to, they thought you could only study what you could measure. And you couldn't measure what was going on in somebody's mind. So when some of the younger professor, one younger professor, Henry Murray, wanted to use Freudian psychology, they wanted to get rid of him. They didn't, they didn't want Harvard to give him tenure. It was a huge fight and that went on for 15 years, starting in the late twenties. And sociology was a lot of, lot of disagreements. Uh, there was one cultural anthropologist in the anthropology department who wanted to use Freudian concepts to study the Navajo Indians. That department was not happy with him because the department was very much archeologically oriented. And it's it was called stones and bones, so you had you had disagreements within the disciplines, and then to get back to your question, the other disciplines, economics, history, and government, were always considered the great powers at Harvard, the big three, and they sort of looked down on these newer disciplines. Economics, in particular, looked down on sociology because sociology kind of came out of part of economics. Uh, Talcott Parsons, the founder of the department, had his degree in economics from Heidelberg in Germany. And he was in the economics department, but left for sociology because he felt um, that the economics department was incapable of, of creating 
the grand social theory he had in mind to unify all the social sciences. So there was a lot of um, uh, uh, back and forth uh, animosity uh, between and among the disciplines. Uh, and, and after the department was formed, this animosity came into even sharper focus uh, because the, de the Department of Social Relations became very popular. It became the largest concentration. Uh, Harvard calls them concentrations, not majors. Uh, so it was, in fact, taking a lot of students away from those other disciplines. And there was one very interesting um, uh, event that took place in 1949, 1950, where two historians, two history professors, famous, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and Oscar Handlin, uh, spoke at a forum uh, of undergraduates, and the title was Social Relations and Its Critics. And they basically blasted this new department as being an amorphous, uh, quasi-discipline that really was not a discipline at all. So it was very unusual for a discipline to attack another discipline at Harvard or, or any, any university. It was a, a very strange event, but that shows how little the other disciplines thought of social relations. It, it, it had to defend its uh, existence to um, the Department of History. And I, I say in the book, it, it, I would have thought that a venerable, venerable department like history would have exhibited a bit of noblesse oblige and said, well, okay, let, let them do what they want. We're not going to sort of get into a fight with them, just, you know, ignore them. But no, they actually attacked them. So if we could, uh, one of the terms that gets used for a lot of these um, figures that sort of come together wanting to do an interdisciplinary inter uh, department like the uh, Department of Social Relations. I guess they're called the Levelers. So maybe we could talk about who are the Levelers. Why do they get that name? Well, the the Leveler, Levelers, that was the name that the founders of the department gave themselves in the late 1920s, when they were meeting secretly, sort of. <laughs> well, not sort of. They were they were meeting clandestinely to plan a new department because their existing departments would not be happy with them planning this breakaway department. So the levelers were uh, Talcott Parsons, who I mentioned, uh, one of the most important sociologists of the 20th century. And he was sort of the ringleader of this group. There was Gordon Allport, who was probably the most famous so social psychologist at the time. That was a, a newer discipline. There was Henry Murray, who I mentioned, who was a clinical psychologist studying abnormal psychology using Freudian and Jungian concepts. And then there was Clyde Cluckhone, who was a cultural anthropologist. As I mentioned, he was the only one in, a, in, in the anthropology department. And he was using Freudian theories to study the dreams of the Navajo Indians. So those were the four uh, uh, founders of the department, they called themselves the levelers because they felt you need to, to rely on many levels to study human behavior. And they each sort of occupied a different level, whether it was psychology, sociology, or anthropology. So that's the, 
that's how the name uh, came about. Real quick, since you mentioned um, Murray and, and Klukon, how they both had an interest in, in Freud and, and Jung. I, I think uh, for younger listeners, uh, you know, psychoanalysis has sort of been out of favor in a lot of ways since the 90s. So maybe to give an insight, why were these uh, figures so interested in psychoanalysis at that time? What, what was it that made psychoanalysis so appealing uh, to a lot of these thinkers? Well, I think it was just that it was a it was a complete opposite of what psychology had been doing at the time, which was what was this focused on what you could measure. So and basically disregarded the interior mind, like if somebody had a phobia or some other you know, problem with motivation or lack of motivation or uh, some irrational you know, fear, uh, any any sort of problem with the interior mind psychology at the time wanted nothing to do with it um and and as an example harvard in the late 20s decided they wanted to bring the best psychologists in the world to harvard so they had a a short list and freud was on it jung was on it but the person they brought to harvard was an animal psychologist um uh, carl lashley who his way of studying psychology was he would train rats to run a maze a certain way then he would take the rat out of the maze he would go into its brain cause a lesion a a wound to part of the brain put the rat back in the maze to see if that affected the animal's memory that and then he would try to extrapolate from that to humans so that shows you how different freud was from them so to a lot of psychologists, Freud was just, uh, just, you know, a, a revelation, and they thought that was the future of, of psychology. And of course, now, even though it's, you know, Freud is um, uh, somewhat in in decline uh, or disrepute among a lot of people, we still have all his language that we use and his concepts that everybody uses, the id, the ego, the superego, the edible complex. These things I mean, it's used a lot in like literary analysis now too. So yeah. yeah. Everybody knows those terms. But at the time in the late, in the twenties and thirties, this was a bombshell. He, I mean, he was talking about sexual issues and, and, and things that were just to a conservative institution like Harvard and also conservative city like Boston, this was really shaking people up. <laughs> so, uh, and, he, and also he's focusing on abnormal psychology. So, you know, uh, this, this was really, as I said, shaking, shaking people up a lot. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I know we're going to get into the fall of this department, but it, in a way I, I almost have to respect um, all these figures, even some of the figures that I, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about him later, but Talcott Parsons, I've always been a little bit wary of. Um, I've, I've been critical of structural functionalism uh, on this show before, but, you know, in, in a way, there's something very um, admirable about all of them because I think they have a lot of ambition. I think what the, the, the project itself uh, was ambitious, even though it eventually falls apart. Yes. I, I, and I, I, you know, I call it sort of a noble, I mean, my term quixotic in the title refers, obviously it's taken from Don Quixote and sort of a, a noble, but uh, impractical, you know, endeavor. 
And that's sort of the way that I saw what they were doing. I mean, they, 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 they thought they had a theory there. Um, Harvard started a department before they had really nailed down the theory. Uh, that was the fatal flaw in, in my view, that if you're going to start an interdisciplinary venture, you should have the underlying theory locked down before you do that. Um, so, yes, I, I thought they were they were trying something uh, um, important. And and I, I have to say that even though the they failed to create a new science, they still did in, in, incredibly important scholarly work. I mean, there was. A, Can you give any examples? Like, what, what, what do you think the most important examples of scholarly work that came out of this uh, department were? Well, they, they. I'll, I'll talk about the one work they tried, which, which failed, which was the one attempt to come up with the interdisciplinary theory, and they, they spent two and a half years with a lot of money from the Carnegie Corporation to, to nail down this theory, and they, they did write a book. But they really, they failed to achieve the goal. The book was called Toward a General Theory of Action. And as you mentioned, structural functionalism was, it was, it was part of that. Um, but then the individual scholars, this really, as I said, superstars in this department, they each, they all continued to do their work um, that was not interdisciplinary, but still was very important. Uh, there was, um, the, 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 you know, the famous uh, lay analyst, Eric Erickson, was a member of the department. Uh, David Reisman, who wrote The Lonely Crowd, well, he wrote that before he got to the department, but he, he, he um, was an important sociologist studying the American character. David McClellan uh, was famous for his writings on motivation, and I forget the name of the title, but that was his... Uh, very important con contribution to the 20th century psychologist. Then I also have to mention uh, Jerome Bruner, who had his PhD from the history, the psychology department at Harvard, but then when social relations was created, he joined that. So he sort of straddled both types of psychology, and he's he's famous for. Uh, being the father of what's called the cognitive revolution. And he wanted to study how do people think? How do normal people think? And that was missing in all this. I mean, there were people studying abnormal psychology, okay? And then there were people like B.F. Skinner who was doing his behavioral stuff. But they were, Jerome Bruner felt that, well, psychology was ignoring, well, just how do normal people think? How do they learn? Uh, and so he, he somewhat broke away from the department. He stayed in the department, but he started his own uh, Center for Cognitive Studies. And so he may be uh, one of the more um, important uh, contributors uh, to psychology that came out of this, this department. If we could, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Talcott Parsons. Uh, what made him the, the ringleader, as she put it? of this, this group, uh, the, the, the levelers and uh, the Department of Social Relations early on? Well, as I, as I mentioned, he, he had his PhD in economics from Heidelberg. He, he translated Max Weber's uh, The Protestant Ethic. He translated that from German and was the prime uh, conduit for bringing that into the American Academy. So he was at an early 
age as a professor, you know, already getting a, a lot of attention. But as I said, he felt ec- he and he already had this idea of an all-encompassing uh, one theory to bring all the social sciences together. And he was already starting to work on that in the economics department. He felt economics wasn't wasn't big enough, you know, for him. And so he left to go to sociology, where he felt as it was constructed then, even sociology wasn't uh, adequate for his purposes. So he, he, he wanted to join it with cultural anthropology and uh, social psychology and clinical psychology, because he felt those were the elements that were important to creating this, uh, this uh, unifying social theory. And I say he's the ringleader because he had that vision and he was the one that was really pushing this group of the levelers down this path. And when he, he also was the one pushing the administration at Harvard for this, because Harvard was, you know, kind of content with the way things were. Um, but how, talk about Parsons got a very generous offer from Northwestern University to start a new uh, department or program there. And so he used that. He went back to the Harvard administration and said, look, I'd rather do this here at Harvard, but if you're not going to do it, I'm going to leave. And, and I'm going to make sure people know why I'm leaving Harvard, that you guys were too timid to do this. You know, he, he was, you know, using a little muscle there. Uh, it's it's pretty- kind of interesting, too, because um, not to interrupt you, but I know a lot of people, when they talk about Tolkott Parsons now, he's seen as, you know, a lot of his ideas are almost seen as being, I've seen people criticize them as being too conservative, but what what he's trying to do with this department is actually kind of revolutionary. He's kind of going against the conservative instincts of uh, Harvard of wanting to keep the sort of status quo. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he, he, was, he was going against the grain of the of of mo, uh, many sociologists at the time, he, he, the other sociologists at Harvard uh, were not pre- particularly happy with him. But he was a rising star, and Harvard recognized that. So they they made him chairman of the Department of Sociology uh, just a year before Harvard created the Social Relations Department. So a very interesting figure. And when he when he died, um, another well-known Harvard sociologist, Daniel Bell, wrote a piece in the New York Times about his friend Talcott Parsons. And the title was, Talcott Parsons, Nobody's Theories Were Bigger. And, you know, praised him for his his pursuit of this this, uh, all-encompassing theory. But he also said, and I say in the book, that his, his theories were so abstract and if you and you know structural functionalism, so you know what I'm talking about. It's it, it, it it's so abstract and dense that the 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 joke at Harvard or jest at Harvard he, he, when I was there, even among people who respected Parsons, was that it was so abstract and 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 complex that he was the only one that could understand it. You know, <laughs> and and that was always the rap on him with his theories that. You know, he he did. Everybody recognized he was brilliant, but he was maybe too brilliant for his own good. It's really interesting, too, because I think regardless of whether you uh, are a follower of of Parsons or a critic, uh, I think, you know, at the time he passed away, 
no one questioned his influence and, and how much of a star he was within the film. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he trained perhaps his biggest contribution. He trained three generations of sociologists, many of whom went on to, to um, be very important scholars in their own right. I mean, Robert Bella, uh, Neil Smelser, uh, Renee Fox, who was at Penn, um, and, you know, so, yeah, there's no denying uh, what, a, what an influence he was, even though he failed with this, this theory, social theory, and he failed with that one book. And he said at the time uh, he was convincing Harvard to start the department, he, he said to Harvard, I'll stake my entire professional reputation on this theory. And it failed. But as I say in the book, hey, he, he made a big wager. He, he swung for the fences, but he's, it, it didn't really damage his reputation. I mean, in a, in a, in a significant way. I want to get into, um, I guess, the psychedelic aspects of uh, this story. But before we do that, what were some of the early challenges uh, that Parsons and others faced with uh, the Department of Social Relations? And then from there, I'd like to go into, uh, you know, Timothy Leary and, and whatnot. But well, what were the early uh, challenges of this department? Well, the, the early challenges were they, they, they lacked a theory that brought all these elements together. And so they were kind of flailing around. It's almost to, like they got to, ahead of themselves. They almost, oh, yeah, they absolutely. were like, we, we want a unified theory, but we don't know how to get there. But yeah. Yeah. And, and so they had all these graduate students who wanted to go to social relations because it was full of, as, I, as I've said, superstars. And so Parsons' challenge was, well, okay, how do I, what am I going to teach these graduate students? How do, what's the interdisciplinary theory? So how, how do I train them in a theory that doesn't yet exist? So they had a, what they call a pro-seminar that all the graduate students had to take. And the, what they would do is they would bring in Henry Murray to talk about his piece. They'd bring in Clyde Cluckhorn to talk about his piece of the puzzle. They would bring in Gordon Allport to talk about his, talk of Parsons would talk about his, and, and a few others. But they weren't really pulling it all together. So the graduate students, and I, 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 I interviewed a couple, I've read their correspondence and their memoirs, and the graduate students were just, they didn't know what to make of this. They were having real troubles, because what is social relations? I mean, they, they talk about it as an academic roller coaster. Uh, they were they would go from one famous scholar to the next without anybody connecting the dots. And they sort of felt like they were left to connect the dots on their own. Like they were left in the wilderness almost. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were at Harvard and they were obviously, you know, smart, motivated students. But they were kind of at a loss as to what to do. They had to absorb all this material, pull it together. So there was a, a, a that was a huge difficulty there and then administering the department was difficult because as time went on each discipline kind of became a mini department so you had a meeting of the faculty of social relations but then you had a meeting of just the social psychologist then you had a meeting of just the sociologist and then a meeting of the anthropologist so that was two sets of me meetings that faculty had to attend, these professors had to attend. And the anthropologists were worse off than anybody because some of them still had a, a, a joint appointment with the 
existing anthropology department. So they had three different faculty meetings. So if you're a professor, that takes a lot of time, uh, you know, out, out of your, your schedule just to do administrative stuff. So that was, a, that was a real headache. And the department was successful, as I said. It, was, it became the biggest department at Harvard. So you also had to deal with all these undergraduates. You know, how do you teach them a, a discipline that doesn't really exist? Um, so, so that was a problem. And, and Talcott Parsons wrote about that in a 10-year report that he wrote about how frustrated he was with um, the, the whole undergraduate situation. So there were, there were a lot of headaches, uh, uh, sort of what I call administrative headaches, as well as intellectual problems is because they, hadn't, they didn't have a theory. Were there also, I guess, headaches stemming from, I mean, did, did the different parts of this social relations department ever butt heads against each other? Um, not until later. In the early days, they all were part of an exciting venture, uh, even though it was a bit, you know, haphazard. And, and Harvard professors are, you know, as in many institutions, uh, if you've got tenure, you can pretty much do what you want. So they, it sounds they, like the early period was like the honeymoon period. Yeah, for these yeah. I, I, call that the, I call that the golden age of social relations. The first five, five years, even though they, they lacked this uh, unifying theory, they were, there was an excitement. Even among the graduate students who were so kind of frustrated and frightened, they also thought it was exciting to be part of this, this new venture. They were creating something new. And uh, they were the only ones that knew what it was or what it could be. And the rest of the world was kind of oblivious. So there was a, a lot of excitement there in those early years, despite the administrative and intellectual uh, problems. So then how do we segue from that early period to, uh, I, I really want to get into Tim, Tim Leary. So how does Tim, Timothy Leary come into the picture? The sort of, I guess he's known as the sort of, um, LSD guru of the 60s, although I do think uh, before he became known for that, I do think he was a, a, a pretty respected psychologist at one point before his sort of a counterculture phase. But how does he get uh, involved in this? Well, he he came to Harvard in 1959. And as you said, he was a mainstream psychologist. He had written a book that uh, got a lot of uh, positive attention. So he was brought in uh, just you know, to the, uh, there was a center on this, the personality, uh, study of personality, and he was brought in um, to, to work on that as a clinical psychologist, which meant he wanted to study and help people in, in real life situations. It wasn't some abstract, you know, sort of work that he was, he was doing. So David McClellan uh, brought Timothy Leary in and, Tim, and McClellan at the time said, yeah, I, I brought Leary in uh, because I thought we really needed to get things going. And as I say in the book, uh, well, you know, Leary got things going okay, but not in the way that uh, McClellan had, had imagined. So when he arrived, he was a mainstream psychologist, very charming fellow, uh, smart, witty. Uh, and, but the first that first summer after he joined Harvard, well, the, he, and, and in his own autobiography, he says he even looked the part of a Harvard professor. He had, a, he had the white button-down shirt. He had the jacket with the elbow patches. 
the khaki pants. Uh, and the only thing that was a, myth, a little off was he wore tennis shoes with that outfit, which at the time was very unusual. So as I say in the book, that might've been a tip off that he was not gonna uh, you know, you know, stay in step uh, with, the, with the department. But um, that summer he went to Mexico and he tried the magic mushroom for the first time. And that was a, that was a revelation to him. He, he called it a religious experience. He was convinced this was the future of psychology, how to help people. Uh, and it needed to be studied. So when he got back to Harvard that fall, he, he started the psilocybin project. And there were three different experiments that he conducted. And I should add that one of his uh, early um, followers at Harvard among the faculty was a, a, another psychologist whose name was Richard Alpert. Ram Das. Ram Das. He, he later was uh, reborn as Ram Das after he left Harvard. So back then he was Richard Alpert studying personality psychology and uh, Leary, he and Leary became fast friends. They were bachelors at the time. Uh, they both had evening office hours, which was kind of unusual. And they, they referred to themselves as, um, in those early days, as uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, because they were both a little already contrarian and anti-establishment. Uh, later, though, Larry referred to them as the outlaws, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So as they evolved uh, uh, from mischievous boys to, to having some legal problems, um, so Timothy Leary started this with, with Alpert, started the research on, on psilocybin. And I should mention how he got the psilocybin. Was because, that from, uh, did he get it from Sandoz? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was impractical to give the mushroom to people. Um, you didn't know the, the quality of the mushroom or how much of the, the, the substance was in it, psilocybin. So Sandoz had, had made the synthetic uh, drug and he wrote to Sandoz at, saying, you know, on Harvard stationery, saying, I'm, I want to do some research on this. Will you send me some? And they said, they wrote, they sent him back a huge, huge supply with just a little note that said, you know, let us know how it goes. I mean, it was not a it was not a very scientific or demanding uh, uh, exchange. But and I should say back then, these drugs were legal. I mean, right. They were not yet illegal. So it was all a bit uh, loose. But you have to keep in mind that uh, that. So they started these experiments. And the, uh, there were three different types of experiments he did. Basically, he would give them to uh, students and others and just ask them to write about their experience. So again, it was not highly scientific you know, at all. Uh, and then he would give, uh, he, was, he, he gave the psilocybin to uh, graduate students in the Andover Seminary because he wanted to see with if, they, if he could create a religious experience with people who are already, you know, uh, studying religion. And it was the same thing. He'd give them the psilocybin. And I, 
I believe some of the times it was within a church itself. Um, and then the third experiment was at the Concord prison. He would give it to inmates to see if it could reduce their recidivism. And Leary claimed to have great success with that last one. Uh, he, he claimed like 80% of these prisoners, when they left, they didn't come back into prison, which was, you know, one of the big problems. I, I was going to say, I, I don't I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was a whole movie made in like the late 60s by the um, very flamboyant filmmaker uh, Otto Preminger called uh, Skidoo and uh, Groucho Marx is in it. But the whole premise of it is based on that, giving LSD to uh, prison mates and making them more peaceful or whatever. So there oh, was wow. a lot of talk of this type of thing in the air at the time. Wow. Well, just the thought of uh, Otto Preminger... And Groucho Marx working together makes me makes me smile, you know. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll have to check that out. So then Harvard became very alarmed because there were a lot of reports about students taking these drugs. Uh, a couple students went to the hospital. Um, uh, so and and Harvard started looking into this, and and they called in Leary and Alpert and questioned them about what they were doing. Uh, this, this argument back and forth went on for quite a while. Leary and Alpert claimed academic freedom. We're allowed to do the research the way we want to do it. Harvard said, uh, no, this is a substance that affects people's brains. Uh, we have a responsibility to protect the students. And, and uh, Leary then came back and said, well, look, William James at Harvard was famous for uh, uh, in, in breathing uh, nitrous oxide and, and writing about his experiences. So uh, he, he's, he's a revered professor at Harvard and we, uh, uh, we're only following in his, his, his intellectual footsteps, so to speak. And so Harvard's the perfect place for this. So finally though, they reached an agreement Harvard said, well, you can't give any, you can't give the drugs to the undergraduates anymore. Uh, and, they, and they said, okay, but Leary, uh, or Alpert rather, uh, violated that rule. He gave uh, the drugs to an undergraduate um, who was a friend of his, and it, it became known to the administration, so they fired him. They fired Alpert, which was, one of the, may have been the only time Harvard fired a professor in the 20th century. Um, and Leary was not fired. He just stopped showing up for classes, uh, which is sort of- That's in classic keeping, Timothy Leary, yeah, to be honest. It's sort of in keeping with his, his catchphrase, turn on, tune in, and drop out, you know? Uh, he just didn't show up. Uh, and so they took his name off the payroll. It was pretty, you know, just, the administrative action. And what I, what I say in the book is that this, this incident at heart, well, this, got a, this finally got in the New York Times. The firing and the, uh, the controversy got in the New York Times. Then Andrew Weil, who was a student, and I don't know if your listeners know Andrew Weil, but he's a very famous, um, he's got an empire of sort of, uh, uh, holistic uh, medicine, uh, and he, he's, on, he's been on the cover of like Time magazine, but back then he was a student, and he was on the newspaper, 
And he he wrote an article in in uh, Life magazine uh, talking about all the controversy, the the wild rumors about uh, the research and orgies and all sorts of stuff. And then Saturday Evening Post and other magazines had articles. So what I say in the book is this this incident at Harvard and in this department in in a significant way was sort of launching the the drug counterculture movement because the general public was unaware of these of psychedelic drugs and what was going on on the campuses so that 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 helped launch the drug counterculture in a way and of course it helped launch Leary as the guru uh, who went on to lead that so this may be I, I don't know if you would consider this outside of your area of expertise or not but I, I know Leary also had issues with um, other thinkers of the time who were writing about psychedelics, like um, I believe he butted heads a little bit uh, after initially getting along with him, uh, but he butted heads with uh, Aldous Huxley, ultimately, who wrote The, the Doors of Perception. Uh, do you think, I, I mean, we're seeing more interest in psychedelic research now again, uh, but is it arguable, could we argue almost that maybe Leary and, and figures like Albert actually set back like legitimate research into psychedelics with the way they sort of went about doing their business. Yes, no, that's a, that's a very good point. And um, I, I should say that, first of all, I'll get, I'll get back to Aldous Huxley in a minute, but it's ironic and Leary, <laughs> Leary would be uh, laughing a bit now because just this past spring, Harvard started studying psilocybin again, but in the medical school and with Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, so, of course, they're doing it with all the scientific controls and medical doctors and all the rest. But yeah, I was still, I was going to say, I don't think Leary's like desire to research this in and of itself was bad. I think it's good that we're seeing more research into it now. So go on. Yeah. 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 So so I have to give credit to Leary that he recognized the potential. Right. You know, he, he went about it in a way that was not as rigorous or scientific, but you have to give him credit for recognizing the potential. Um, and, but because of the stigma attached to that early so-called research uh, and, and uh, the controversy and all the bad publicity, it led to Richard Nixon, who labeled Leary the most dangerous man in America because of the drugs, Nixon then pushed through the Illegal Substances Act of 1971. And that stopped everything. Research, dead in its tracks, e e wherever it was. And Michael Pollan has a very interesting documentary called How to Change Your Mind. And he, he talks about uh, this moment in time. And he talks to some of the, one of the researchers who was doing research at a hospital and yeah, overnight, they just had to stop this research. And so it was stopped for, um, well, from 1971 till it was only in recent years that people have started doing the research again. Although in Switzerland and other places, you know, obviously they were, they were continuing to, to do the research. So yeah, I think it, I think it did, uh, the Leary episode uh, likely set back legitimate research uh, for a number of, of, of years. Um, oh, and for and your point about Aldous Huxley is is correct. I mean, he, 
Leary reached out to Huxley early on, in fact, invited him to Harvard. And Huxley at the time was teaching at MIT. So it was just, just down the street from Harvard. And Leary invited him to have lunch at the Harvard Faculty Club to discuss this. And they both sort of laughed because the soup of the day was mushroom soup. So they, they had quite a laugh about that. Uh, and Huxley at, at first was sort of on board with it. He thought, yeah, this needs to be investigated. But as, as you point out later, he, he just thought Leary was not a serious person, uh, didn't like the way it was going. Uh, Leary was uh, very good at um, uh, circulating among the uh, uh, literati and glitterati, as I call them. I mean, Jack Kerouac, uh, the beatnik generation, Allen Ginsberg used to stay at Leary's house. Uh, uh, you know, he was turning on all sorts of, you know, celebrities uh, and, and enlisting them in the cause. Um, so that was, um, that, that, you know, helped launch him as this, uh, as this, you know, guru. And, and on that note, I, I'll say, uh, I don't know, Larry is just an endlessly fascinating figure for me, uh, both for good and ill, I guess, in a lot of ways, but, um, I guess there, there is a dark side to all this psychedelic research and you sort of get into it at the end of the book when talking about uh, Henry Murrow. Could you talk a little bit about that and his connection to um, a very uh, notorious figure, the Unabomber? Yes. Well, at the same time that Leary and Alpert were doing their research, uh, Murray was doing some, some uh, uh, highly questionable research. And just to go give a little background on Murray, additional background. During World War II, he was the chief psychologist uh, for the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency. And his main area of research and his main sort of contribution was how do you break spies? How do you break them down under severe interrogation? Uh, and then the flip side of that was, well, how do you, how do you recruit people, our own people that would make good spot? Who could withstand severe interrogation? So this was his area of expertise. How do you break people down? And so fast forward to 1959, he was still doing this type of research at Harvard, but he was now doing it on undergraduates without explaining what they were getting into. And there was, uh, Ted Kaczynski was accepted at Harvard when he was 16. He was brilliant, but he was socially awkward, shy, uh, had difficulty um, adapting uh, to, to Harvard. Um, and Murray sort of picked him out as he did other students. He, he would pick either students who, who were, uh, lacking confidence, or he would pick students who were extremely confident. Those were the two types he wanted in, in this experiment. So he, he also had to get permission of Kaczynski's mother, because by the time the experiment started, he had turned 17, but he was still underage. So Leary, or I'm sorry, Murray wrote to um, uh, Kaczynski's mother saying, uh, we're doing this experiment. Uh, 
we're trying to figure out ways to help mankind and uh very we vague stuff yeah 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 <laughs> it was totally it was completely you know uh, uh, uh m- you know misleading and the mother thought oh gee you know um and, and, and the quote from her was kind of sad because she said, well, gee, I, I gave my permission immediately because I thought these nice psychologists at Harvard might help, you know, Teddy, because, you know, I know he's having trouble adjusting. And of course, what they did was a three year long traumatic experiment, uh, breaking him down. And at, uh, at the end of it, at the end of the experiment, at the end of his time at Harvard, um, um, Kaczynski later in the 90s, after he was apprehended, said that was the worst experience of his life and that that was the beginning of his disillusionment with uh, society. It's, it's interesting, too, because I know people would ask him, well, why'd you keep doing the experiment then? I guess he said, I wanted to show that I could take it. Yeah, that's exactly his lawyers at the time, because his lawyers in the trial were trying to show that these other uh, circumstances, uh, ameliorating you know, circumstances, but they asked him, they said, well, you know, you, you, you did this voluntarily and why did you keep going back? And that's exactly what he said. Well, I wanted to show I could take it. He did it for like three years, right? Yeah, 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 wow. three years. And it was um, uh, uh, the, 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 the files are sealed at Harvard on this. So we really won't know much more about it. And I don't, I'm very careful in the book. I, I do not say that Henry Murray or Harvard created the Unabomber. Neither does um, Kaczynski's own brother. I mean, people people put this line out of like uh, uh, LSD and the making of the Unabomber. But even a lot of the people that have talked about this issue don't go as far as to blame Harvard itself. Right, right. And and, uh, it was clearly an unethical experiment, but uh, and it, 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 you know, it might have contributed somehow, but no one really knows. And so it's, it's irresponsible to say, and there are articles and book, even a book called Harvard and the making of the Unabomber. Uh, so I'm, I, I'm very careful. Kaczynski's own brother doesn't say that. Uh, uh, so that, um, you know, it, you know, is important to, to put out there. And you mentioned the LSD. There's another experiment that was going on in the fifties that, that sometimes people conflate with what Murray was doing with Kaczynski, but they're really separate. There's the MK Ultra. I was going to say the CIA's MK Ultra experiments. A lot of people conflate what Murray right. was doing with what the CIA yeah. was doing. Yeah. And I, I don't know that Murray was involved in MK Ultra. He, he obviously had the CIA connection, but MK Ultra, as you know, was a volunteer was an involuntary experiment. I mean, the the CIA was sort of lacing people with LSD uh, to to sort of get all sorts of reactions, and uh, so it was it was quite different and and separate from the Murray experiment with uh, Kaczynski. But if you look at the 20th century in the 1950s, and uh, you, you you see all the sort of things that were going on, um, that uh, and the lack of transparency. Uh, in in not only in government, but in universities. So before we close out, just a few more things. Uh, one really interesting 
little bit from the book involves uh, the radical students for democratic society. Uh, maybe you could tell me how they figure into this story. Well, in, in uh, the fall of 1968, um, there was a group of radical students, uh, some of whom were members of the SDS, others who were sympathetic to the students for democratic society, the, the principal sort of radical group in the United States. They have the largest chapter in the country at Harvard. Uh, um, so that they, they, they were really focused on, on Harvard. And a group of these students convinced a young anthropology professor in social relations to be their cover, sort of be their front man, to, and ask permission to, from the Department of Social Relations to start a course that was going to focus on a radical provide a radical perspective on American society. But they didn't say it was gonna be staffed by the SDS. The professor didn't say any of that. And because, you know, if you, if you think about it, the department was, had a, a large component of sociology and a radical perspective on society, that's not an outrageous Topic yeah, I, I, I'm not to like opposed to the idea itself, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's not, it's not, an, you know, I mean, and uh, so it, it was, it was, it was not necessarily a bad idea on its face. So they didn't disclose to the department or the administration, the SDS was going to be involved, but they got permission for the course. So then they set about, you know, staffing the course and it was staffed with uh, SDS members some were graduate students at Harvard. Some were just people that had no connection to Harvard, which was uh, really prohibited at the time. They weren't members of the, of the university. And then you even had undergraduates teaching other undergraduates, which had never happened before at Harvard. And they didn't want to give grades because they thought grades were just a way of, you know, the man keeping you down, you know? Couldn't and they just get a B in class just for yeah, showing up? And if they asked yeah. for an A, they could get an A. <laughs> it was it was a large course. And it, of course, it was divided into sections. So you would meet weekly in your section, which was much, much smaller, maybe, you know, 15, 20 students or whatever. And each section leader would could have his own sort of approach. But they all, uh, all the section leaders shared this quirky, uh, you know, grading system where they would, you know, one section would, would give a B to everybody. And then if you wanted an A, you had to ask for it. Well, of course, everybody asked for it, right? And another section, if you turn, you could turn in a pen and ink drawing and get a, get a, 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 an A for that. Um, uh, other sections wanted to just sort of draw names out of a hat in a nonsensical way to give grades. So that, that was... That, that was caused a huge scandal at Harvard. The administration was very upset. And of course, they were upset about the SDS infiltrating the course as well. So that happened the fall. And then the second uh, part of the course in the spring was called Soc Social Relations 149. Well, the word had gotten around about this interesting course, which you could get an easy A in. Uh, and it, of course, it was topical, too. I mean, to be fair, it, it, it had topics about imperialism, uh, 
you know, women's rights. You know, I was looking at all these things that typically weren't studied uh, in universities at the time, you know, certainly not Harvard. So the course became the largest course at Harvard, about 800 students and uh, maybe 20 some sections. And at this point, um, and, and the goal of the SDS, I should say, they, they, they are quoted as saying that they wanted this course to proselytize, to sort of uh, uh, bring, bring students in to radical politics. So it, it had this advocacy element that typically is missing from courses in universities. They're not trying to convince you of a particular, they're, they're, they're giving you the information but this was trying to proselytize. And, and they, they said they wanted to be a bridge. The SDS said they wanted the course to be a bridge for students to go from merely, you know, being interested in the left and its goals to taking action. That was their goal. And there was a, the, a famous incident at Harvard in April where the students really there was a takeover of University Hall, which was where uh, uh, the administration largely had their offices. So the students took over the building, uh, threw out the, the deans and everybody else, uh, and, and had the building for a, a day or two um, until the governor called in 400 National Guardsmen to drag the students out. This was a huge, a huge event at Harvard and, and controversial, the use of force. Well, first the use of force by the students and then the use of force to get them out. Uh, and the, the controversy was at Harvard was, could it have been done a different way? And uh, so this was quite, a, quite a, a scandal and controversy at Harvard. And it all was because, oh, and when they dragged the students out, they dragged out the professor whose course it was, he was arrested, as well as 13 of his section leaders. So there clearly was the uh, connection. And the, the rival uh, uh, radical student group, much smaller, gave the SDS credit for, uh, you know, sort of engineering this takeover. So it seems, you know, uh, pretty clear the involvement of this course and the students, the teaching uh, section leaders and the professor in, in the takeover. So it was, it was quite, as I said, quite a, a, a controversy at, at, at Harvard. And what it did for the department, it was sort of the final nail in the coffin of the department. I was going to say, was this sort of the nail in the coffin for them? Yeah. Yeah, it was because the, 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 the Leary episode was a black eye for the department and, and, and sort of caused some of the administration and faculty members to say, what, what is going on with these sort of loose standards at this department? That was a black eye, but it was nothing compared to what happened with this course. And the, the, the department was already sort of suffering because of these issues that I mentioned, the administrative problems of uh, uh, of running a department that basically had all these elements to it. And it was very cumbersome and very complicated and they, they didn't really have an underlying reason. So the professors were all sort of going their own way. They, they, they sort of gave up any notion of 
doing anything interdisciplinary. It was just like three or four mini departments in one huge cumbersome uh, um, umbrella. That was the, the problem. And so it was already weakened by all those things. And then this event was very controversial within the wider faculty, not just the department, but the department of uh, the faculty at Harvard was already split into a conservative caucus and a liberal caucus about the Vietnam War and the student protests. And this was a nonstop topic of discussion about what do, what do we do with these students? Uh, do we let them protest? Do we stop it? Uh, and then you had this course, which pit the same liberal faculty members against the conservative faculty members within the department. And you had some conservative members who were just fed up with how could you, how could this department allow such a, uh, I call it a, a farce uh, of a course to, to go forward. And they were just angry and fed up and wanted, and this was among the sociologists uh, and they were the first group to leave uh, the social relations, but they, they told the administration, we want to leave. We want to just go back to having our own separate sociology department. Uh, they had other reasons uh, because they felt that they could, they wanted to deal directly with the dean so they could get more money, they could get more uh, resources. Uh, and they no longer really had much in common with psychology. They had more in common, they thought, with government and history. And they wanted to pursue ur urban issues, uh, race issues, those sorts of things, which had little to do, if, not, if anything, with psychology. So that they left the department after the sociology department or sociologists went back to having their own standalone sociology department that left just a few psychologists and the cultural anthropologists in the department. So it, it made no sense to carry on with just those two groups. So the Harvard administration said, look, we're going to put the cultural anthropologists back in the anthropology department. And you psychologists have to go back in the existing psychology department with all those experimental psychologists that you you dislike so much. And and uh, the dean at the time, John Dunlop, basically you know kind of forced this uh, reconciliation, uh, uh, very unhappy uh, uh, reconciliation. And that was the end of the department in 1972. So in closing, I guess there were just two things I wanted to ask as the closer here. Uh, the first is, what do you want listeners to get out of this book? What's the lesson we can learn from this history? Well, the one overriding lesson, I think, is that if a university is going to attempt to uh, do a, an interdisciplinary department or venture, it should have the theory in place first. That was the fatal flaw of what Harvard did. And there's still a lot of, I mean, it, universities throw around the word interdisciplinary. They're still to this day starting different programs and, and uh, institutes and so on and so forth. And you really have to question whether they're interdisciplinary or, or, or just merely multidisciplinary. So I think the lesson is, you have to make sure you really have something that's uh, interdisciplinary. 
you got to be clear about the language and what your goals are. And then for more general readers, I would just say it's an interesting look at, at uh, higher education and Harvard in particular, and how this department intersected with some really, uh, you know, important uh, cultural and social political events uh, of, of 20th century. Last thing I wanted to get at is, I, I know in a way we've painted, a, I, I guess, a, a negative picture of a lot of the figures we've talked about. So um, maybe the troubling legacy of figures like a Timothy Leary or a Ram Dass or a Talcott Parsons. But is there another side to them? Uh, like, were any of their contributions of positive value, I guess? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. They made, they made many positive contributions. I, I think I said earlier that um, even if even if they weren't interdisciplinary in their contributions, they still were all superstars in their respective fields and did great scholarly work. And uh, you know, Talcott Parsons, yeah, as we talked about, still made great contributions to sociology. He trained three generations, as I said, of of uh, sociologists. Uh, Jerome Bruner, the father of cognitive psychology, and uh, and others, whether it's David Reisman or David McClellan or Eric Erickson, um, you know, they all did great, important work. And they they too trained uh, graduate students who who went on to, you know, they adopted not maybe there was no theory of interdisciplinary approach, but there is what I call an ethos, you know, that that, that people thought in an interdisciplinary way. And, and there may be a scholar within his own mind that has an interdisciplinary approach. And there's a fellow at Harvard Graduate School of Education who, who went to social, social relations, uh, both undergraduate and graduate, Howard Gardner, who, who is very much an interdisciplinary uh, scholar and looks at his, his areas of, uh, uh, of research in that way. And he, he credits his training in that way. So yeah, there's, there are many positive contributions uh, that th th this department had, d despite failing in its stated uh, mission. Well, Patrick L. Schmidt, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax used to discuss your book, Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of, new, of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Patrick L. Schmidt, author of Harvard's Quixotic Pursuit of a New Science, The Rise and Fall of the Department of Social Relations. Next week, I should be releasing a number of spooky season-themed episodes for your Halloween listening. So look forward to that. If you're wondering why there's been a few less episodes than usual this month, it's because I've been prepping the Halloween-themed episodes for next week, including a conversation with screen queen Brink Stevens and Euro-horror scholar Troy Howarth, among others. So you'll have that to look forward to, and of course, hopefully we'll be recording a new 
Parallax Views Varn Vlog crossover for Patreons very shortly here. So, all that and more is coming up here at Parallax Views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.